Thank you for that beautiful musical offering to Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your glory. Help us to see it, to hear it. Help us to be it as you live in us. Now, Lord, as we take a journey, make us Bereans. We talk about the Berean spirit. They heard Paul. They searched out what he said. It wasn't right because he said it. And it wasn't wrong because it went against their narrative. They had a noble spirit. They were men and women of truth. They found truth in a deeper search. So wherever we start here today, may we end up farther down the journey. And I'm asking, Lord, may we rise up and fulfill the prophetic call in this hour of destiny as a people of destiny. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. The title of my message this morning, Adventist Education, Respectable and Conventional. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians, chapter 11. This will be the first of three messages on Adventist education. And I'm going to start like Paul was finishing in the second book to the most challenging church in the New Testament. A group of people with whom he strained his relationship and strengthened their experience with Christ at great personal expense. Verse 16, 2 Corinthians 11. Again I say, let no one think me foolish. But if you do, receive me even as foolish, so that I may also boast a little. Now I want to put a little word of encouragement out to all of you who are involved in learning in the school of life. For it is the ultimate school to learn in. And should you reject your daily opportunities to learn in the school of life, it doesn't matter to me how many degrees you attach to your name. They mean little and might be an impediment to your usefulness to God and your own happiness. Having said that, I'm starting a series on Christian education, and I love and value Christian education. But I want to make a point. What Paul is effectively saying, if you won't hear me as a messenger of God, at least hear me through some human credentials. If you won't accept that the Spirit's moving through Paul, think about what he's done. Think about who he is. Some people won't listen no matter how much evidence you have. Other people's spirits are tuned to truth, and they are convicted and confirmed by the inner witness. Verse 17. What I'm saying, I'm not, I, I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness in this confidence of boasting. So he says, I will digress at some level, and I'm going to use a human form of reasoning because some of you are not sensitive to the Spirit. 
Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. Now, this must have been so hard for him to write. I would like to talk to you spiritual to spiritual. Of course, in the first book of Corinthians, he tells them, you're still drinking milk, you're not converted. And then this most painful treatise, full of hope, but challenging in the spirit of the gospel, which is the glorifying power of a merciful God who lives truth. But since you've tuned yourself to being focused on the human side of the equation, and moving according to human wisdom, I'm going to go there, Paul says a little bit. Not only do you tolerate them, but it appears that they are held in some kind of honor. Verse 20, for you tolerate if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we've been weak by comparison. Paul doesn't have the spirit of the world. He's not appealing to that naturally affirmative and confirming mentality of the world. He's not coming with a message it's easy to hear. He's not coming in a way where he's going to receive kudos from the unconverted. To my shame, Verse 21, I must say that we've been weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak, I speak foolishly. I'm just as bold. Verse 22. So here we go. If we must establish human credibility, he says, I'm going to do this. Are they a Hebrew? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? And now he interjects parenthetically. This isn't how it should usually be done. I speak as if insane. I'm more. All right, so we've just left the comparison of what they are that he is. We're just getting ready to leave it behind because all that they say they are in the spirit of the world, which allowed them to be spiritually enslaved, he's now leaving the similarities behind, and he's going to show them that if you, if you don't have enough discretion to recognize what's going on, even as they slap you in the face and enslave you with wrong spiritual understandings, now I'm going to show you why you should listen to me, not them. Now, this is not the way to write a gospel treatise unless you have to, and that's what he's doing. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, here we go. In far more labors, I work harder than they do. In imprisonment, I've been in jail more than they've been. Suffering from fists and rods, beaten times without numbers. I've been to jail, I've been beat up more than they have. And often, Death is hanging over my head. Five times I received that which could kill a person. Thirty-nine lashes with the metal and bone-infested whip. Can you imagine what this man's back had to look like? He was a scar-riddled servant of the Lord. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And by the way, that's an intended capital punishment procedure. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, and I want have any of us faced any of these things? Dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst often, without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me concerning all the churches. Now, why do I read that at the beginning of a series on Adventist education? Because the church in this division finds itself in exactly the same place. We have determined that inspiration is substandard data compared to empirically derived information. We have found ourselves with the mentality of the Corinthians, and so somebody has to say, really? Could we think about this for a minute? Somebody has to deviate from the dynamics of an inspired covenant conversation where we could just talk about it because the infatuation with the modern culture that has to see it before it believes it has left us disadvantaged and taken advantage of and it's as if the devil is slapping us in the face while so much of what we believe in just loses health and vitality and goes down the tubes and it appears that it's all okay as long as nobody upsets the apple cart. Let me get more pointed. I received my salvation through a Seventh-day Adventist church school, and it was not an ordinary journey, and I won't go into all of it now, but a backslidden little firstborn in a family of four children was forced to go to a church school, and I met Christ. Lots of you listening to me today were encouraged in your church school, but very few of you were plucked as a brand out of the fire through a church school teacher I was. Not only did I receive my salvation at the feet of a God-fearing Seventh-day Adventist teacher in spite of all the influences of my home, some of which were good, certainly have heard me speak very favorably of my parents, and yet through eyes less gracious, there were many challenges in my home that could have put me on a trajectory to self-destruction. I owe everything to Jesus who worked through my church school teacher, glory, hallelujah. And if you go in my office today, you'll see a picture of Spirit Island. 
a big, beautiful nature picture. And if you look around, the only other picture you're going to see is of a man with jet black hair, a big round face, right in the center of my bookshelf. That I don't have many pictures up of people that aren't related to me in my house or in my circle of influence, but the church school teacher who won me to Christ, whenever I walk into that office, there he is, Carlisle Bennett, a Michigander, implanted in central Illinois, who walked with Jesus and was a living fountain of everlasting life. I owe everything to him. And this morning, I'm starting a series where I'm going to challenge the system that brought me to Christ. One Sabbath morning, I stood in a pulpit, certainly not plexiglass 30, 40 years ago. And on the next Monday at school, my teachers pulled me aside, Carlisle and Linda Bennett, and they said, we think you may be called to the ministry. I want to tell you what looked amazing in its affirmation from the two adults I respected most lost its beauty as I navigated through life in the church. And eventually I said, no, that's not for me. And there are people listening to me here today who have been called to the ministry of teaching and some called to the ministry of pastoring. And if you're being called, let the Spirit confirm what others will affirm. I owe the first understanding of the path of my destiny to my Seventh-day Adventist church school teacher. I'm standing before you because of a Seventh-day Adventist church school teacher. My career, no, my calling is a gift of Seventh-day Adventist education. They discovered it by giving me an opportunity to discover it. My wife of 35 years is not here today because she's caring for her mother. I met her on a blind date at Andrews University. And in spite of doing the best I could to ruin everything God wanted to give me in the first date, I had to work about a year to change her mind. I stood with my hand in hers in a Seventh-day Adventist church and we pledged ourselves in the presence of God and our family of witnesses to love each other. I owe my wife and my joy as I head for year 36 to Seventh-day Adventist education. More than that, all kinds of confidence. My first car was that purple and white American Motors Gremlin, which you'd have to be a little old to remember what those look like. American Motors produced another fantastic razzle-dazzle car called the Pacer. It was like a bubble on wheels. This car company would have been the coolest car company if it would have started up about three years ago. But because it started up back in the state or was functioning in the state and fairly somewhat regulated according to today's measure, 70s, it went out of business. It was the most amazing thing. But I can remember my teacher in the parking lot of Peoria Junior Academy, he was T 
teaching us how to do auto body on this car. I didn't realize the car would be mine some days. My, that car was sold to me for $225 from my teacher. It was nothing but a gift. It was a gift. And as we were doing auto body in the parking lot, teachers listening to me, you don't have everything you want or need. It's okay. God will bless you. Do what you can with what you've got. Churches and pastors listening to me, let's do everything we can to give them everything they need. But I can still remember purple, you don't see a lot of truly purple cars. For those of you that love purple, this would have been your car. It wasn't a faded purple. It was a distinct, glorious purple, if you love purple. And I can still remember putting the Bondo on there and sanding it hour after hour of sanding it, and I'm ready to paint it. He said, feel it. Put your hand on it and feel it. He said, if you can feel where the Bondo begins, you're going to see it when the paint goes off. Not, no way. He was right. When we finally spray paint, it was a class car for fixing all the rust and the dents. I didn't realize he was going to sell it to me. And a few weeks after my 16th birthday, I'd be hauling all my kids, all my siblings to the Peoria Junior Academy in, in that gremlin. It took me on to Broadview Academy, which no longer exists. It took me to Illinois Central College, which was a year of public college. It, it was part of my experience here at Andrews. That very car had a six-cylinder 232 inline six, which is still, the engine is very good. It, it still is used in a lot of Jeeps. And it had bad compression, and so it moved like this under the hood, which was bad. My teacher said to me, after he sold it to me, it needs a new valve job. You can do it. Now, this is in the A's before YouTube, where you could watch everything. No, you can do it. Here's how you're going to do it. You get yourself a Polaroid camera and some sandwich bags, and you take a picture of everything you do and write it down and put all the nuts and the bolts in a bag. And of course, we had Chilton manuals back then, but Chilton manuals, they still exist, I hear, but they don't do you very good if in the first sentence you read a word which you don't even know what they're talking about. So when you can go to YouTube, young people, and learn about anything in the world, and teachers, by the way, take advantage of YouTube to teach about anything that's worth learning in the world, you've got a lot going for you. I can remember him telling me, you can do this. And when the night came that I sat that head with its newly machined valves back on the main body of the engine, the block, and I bolted all those bolts down in certain pattern with just the right amount of fork, uh, torque in the torque wrench. I can still remember sitting in that car, turning the key, and when that engine came to life and purred like a Singer sewing machine, I felt like I had just climbed Mount Everest and conquered the world. A gift from my teacher. Listen. The confidence to take risk is nothing less than the function of a man, Carlisle Bennett, used by God to show the sweetness of Jesus, to challenge us to do more for Jesus, and to encourage us that life could work and we could conquer in the name of Jesus. I owe just about every single good thing in my life to Christian education, Seventh-day Adventist Christian education, and this morning, I'm going to challenge it. When we think about the goal and the purpose of Seventh-day Adventist education, I want to assure you that God had no intention to watch it fade away when it's needed the most. Take your Bibles and turn over to the book of Haggai. Haggai, little bitty book. Find the book of Matthew and back up into those minor prophets. 
they have a major message. The book of Haggai, just before Zechariah, just after Zephaniah. Haggai, chapter 1. Now let's contextualize the experience of Israel at this moment in time. This is a difficult place they find themselves in. This is 15 years. It's 519, 520 B.C. It's the first day of the Feast of the New Moon. You can figure all this out from chapter 1, verse 1. Now, who's this written to? This is written to all the exiles that left, uh, that left Mesopotamia and came home. These are the good church members. These are the people who listened to the call to give up the luxuries of Babylon and meet of Persia and go home to Jerusalem where everything was broken down, where there were no systems of wealth, no networks of upward financial mobility. These are the people who heard the word and went. These are not the resolute worldly ones that lingered behind in the land of Daniel, who's now gone. So I want you to understand, they went back, they laid the foundation of the temple, and then they stopped. They were resisted and they quit. And God was patient with them. But finally, some 15 years later, the foundation to the new temple is sitting in the ground, unbuilt on. And this is what God has to say. Verse 6, you've sown much but harvested little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Now, I want to hit the pause button right there. And I want to tell everybody listening to me, you're hearing from someone who loves Adventist education. I'm not sure anybody could find a greater love in a heart of another for Adventist education. But I want us to stop and do what Haggai the prophet says. Consider your ways. Why is it like this? Did God send them back to Jerusalem so they could all become paupers? Did God send them back to Jerusalem so they become mocked? Did God send them back to Jerusalem so that they could all look like there was no God looking out for them? Maybe God is kind of like my mother who said to me, in effect, if we're in Kroger and you need a spanking, you're going to get a spanking in Kroger, right in the aisle. Maybe God's okay with looking a little bit chagrined and embarrassed for a few minutes like he's not really succeeding at his job in order to do his job. And maybe all of us are going to have to stop and say, let's lay our human pride aside and see if we're doing a good job. I'm here to suggest today that when God met with Joshua before they crossed the river and he said, don't go to the left, don't depart to the right, but walk in the way that I lead and nobody will be able to stand against you and you will prosper in everything you do. And I have no doubt that this very same God has offered the same invitation to every generation. And so when I look at my churches and my schools and I watch them withering on the vine, by God's grace, village is on an uptick and is strengthened day by day. But when I watch the churches and the schools, I have to say to myself, if things aren't working right, maybe you should consider your ways. Maybe there's something that ought to be discussed and prayed over. And I'm not talking about standing outside the edifice of involvement and commitment and lobbying rocks of criticism 
inside to the faithful ones who are trying to carry it, make it go, and, 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 and shielding themselves from the careless, casual criticism of others. No, that's not me. I'm here today speaking as foolish as Pastor Paul could speak to the Second Corinthians because I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt we have mission drift in the home, in the church, and in the school. And if we're going to be ready for what's coming, we're going to have to come back to the leading of Jesus in the home, in the school, and in the church. Consider your ways. Why is it like this? Verse 8, go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, this next phrase ought to blow us away. It says, I blow it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house, which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Now I want you to think about this parenting model. God is blessing them in some measure. Their hard work is yielding results, but they bring it home and God says, what an intervention. It is terrible for a parent to do something of such a nature unless God is giving them blessings and they are heaping them up to their own damnation and destruction and the loss of a witness to the world, which is exactly what was happening. God says, I'm going to have to get their attention. It's just too bad. I have to do it this way. But if it means the loss of financial and security blessings and significance, that's what it's going to have to mean. God says, stop and consider your ways. Now, if Psalm 1 says that God prospers the righteous man in whatever he does, let's go look at it. I don't want you to think I'm just pulling things out of the hat. Go back to the very first of the Psalms. And I want you to see the divine affirmation on the man or the woman who walks with God. How blessed is the man, verse 1, Psalm 1, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Pause. We should not be taking our educational counsel from people of this pedigree. And while there is objective truth, no matter where it originates from, it is to be measured and evaluated through the lens of inspiration. This is not whom we're to be walking with, lock arm, lock step, when it comes to our educational experiences. We are to be the head, not the tail. But being the head takes risk and a higher level of commitment and a whole lot more work. And it's a lot easier to just glide to the back of the train and be the tail. Verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree, for, firmly planted by the streams of water, which yield its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Now, pastor, are you preaching the prosperity gospel? Hardly. I've lived life long enough to know that things don't always go right. I once had a little white Honda Civic that had been my parents and my sisters. One day I walked out to see a tree had fallen on it. I was in the middle of those years of raising children. I don't know that my wife for 18 years, she did no work outside the home or a little part-time work. And I looked at that car with the front windshield broken out. And I said, God, why? What good will this do? I don't know of any, but I know that in some respect, 
There are complete dynamics of God's grace that happen to everybody. The sun came up today for all of us. Most of us will have plenty to eat. Some in this world will not. And I know also that bad things happen to people that are not totally experienced. But this morning, I'm not so much looking to give you an insurance package that it's going to be easy, a bed of roses and and a primrose pathway to walk in, as much as I'm saying it's time for us to stop and fulfill what God wants fulfilled by saying to ourselves, if it was a little hit and a little miss there, that'd be one thing. But effectively, what we're watching is a culture in which we have taken too much confidence in those who know not how to discern inspiration or recognize sources of inspiration, and we find ourselves disadvantaged. We're not prospering in everything we should be prospering in as a denomination. So, Something should change. What is it? And who's it for? This is the book Education. It's one of several books that the pen of inspiration wrote on the subject matter. This morning, I'm going to talk about the elemental cornerstone of Christian education. She writes in the very first paragraph, our ideas of education take too narrow and too low a range. There's a need of a broader scope, a higher aim. True education means more than a perusal of a certain course of study. In American society, it's good for services. Just give me the goods so I can get the job. It means more than a preparation for the life that is now, which is what most people think about alone. Big paycheck, nice house, good cars, lots of opportunity and vacations. It has to do with the whole being and the whole period of existence possible to man. Think heaven. It is the harmonious development of the physical the mental and the spiritual powers. And now here we come to the sentence to launch the book. Don't miss this. It prepares the student for a three-letter, three-word phrase. The joy of what? Service. Your education doesn't get them prepared for the joy of service. Mama, Papa, you failed. Your education doesn't teach them how to work and serve with joy, teacher. You failed. And your education doesn't point your children, your church members, preacher, to the joy of service. You failed. Joy of service, she says, in this world and for the higher joy of a wider service in a world to come. Clearly, in the author's mind, in the very first paragraph, last sentence of first paragraph, there is one purpose alone for Christian education, and it is the joy of service here and in the future. And if we think that somehow the joy of service is to be discovered over there, we won't be there to find out. I had someone come to me recently, and they were quite humble and quite transparent happened to be a man, and he said to me, Pastor, my wife says that I'm a hard worker. 
when I'm getting paid. The not-so-hard-to-discover storyline is that when I'm not getting paid and there's no affirmation from the outside, I'm not a very hard worker. It was a nice, respectful affirmation complaint properly lodged by a woman of a Proverbs 31 ilk. And by the way, if there's one thing a Proverbs 31 woman is, she's a worker. She serves out of love, which is the foundation of all education. She serves her fellow man. She serves her household. He serves. The joy of service. It is the desire of fulfilling God's plan to make somebody's life better. It's to do something for someone else they might not be able to do for themselves. It is the law of heaven. And if it's not taught in the home and it's not taught in the school and it's not taught in the church, then there's no upward, broader perspective on life. Do I love to serve? Is that what's bubbling up in my heart? As we prayed this morning as a church to be a fountain is that fountain of affection for a loving God and a needy world the motivation of our lives? When our children learn to work in our homes, they are learning the law of success. The people of two generations ago, we call them the silent generation. I'll tell you why lots fewer of them divorce. It's not just because society looked askance on the idea of divorce. It's that almost all of them had to learn to work and they learned the law of service which they took into their marriages and they succeeded simply on the merit of one of the relational laws of life. But as we become a consumer society and we entertain ourselves to death and people don't know how to work, we find people barely married a year or two who are giving up and jumping off the ship. The law of service is what everything is built on that succeeds with glory and significance. Even secular world companies like Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, recognizing how the best companies function like high-functioning families where they're actually highly loved and highly held accountable and they're taught to serve with love. How much of our life is focused around serving ourselves so there's a paycheck back to us. That's not the kind of service she's talking about. It's not right for you parents to not teach your kids to serve. They should learn to serve at home. Yes, they'll complain. You did. So did I. It takes a while to teach some lessons. They need a lot of encouragement. You've got to be patient. Yes, you could do it faster yourself. But when our kids, whether it's in the home or the classroom or at the church, are having to do what we call the menial task of life, that's actually what life is, really. And only the rich people can dish them off to other people. But God's people are not to just collect their riches so that they can get people to do everything for them. God's people are actually to be stewards of the riches so that they can reach more people, which means they themselves have to love to work. If you don't love to work, you're not cut yet from the cloth the way Jesus wants to cut you because in this society, most of what Jesus needs to get done is going to be all done by volunteers. And I want to assure you, the paid people in this church 
Like the one standing before you here today, we go way past those 40 hours in serving Christ. Not to pat ourselves on the back, but simply to say to you, we're volunteers just like all of you at a certain point in time in the experience. And if the spirit of love doesn't motivate us, what do we have? Go back and read 1 Corinthians 13. We're a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If our children are not taught to work, if we don't teach ourselves to work, then we've defied the first principles of heaven, that the law of service. You've heard that story before about heaven and hell, why in hell they were all starving, even though the tables were set with food. That's because there was a deformity to their bodies in hell, and this segment of their arm was twice as long as every human being's, so they couldn't get the fork to their mouth no matter what. But the table was set for food, and they were all starving. Strange enough, one goes to heaven and he sees the same deformity on the arms of the angels. And the table is set with food, but all of the angels are well fed. And what they discovered was that in heaven, the angels were dipping their forks into the, the abundant food and serving the person across the table from them. And in hell, they just didn't do that. Folks, the law of service. How is it woven into the fabric of your home? How is it woven into the fabric of our schools? How is it woven into the fabric of this church? Without it, there will be no preparation for this life or minimal and no preparation for the life of service beyond. Love, she writes on page 16, is the basis of creation and redemption. It is the basis of true education, all from the first chapter. The law of love calls for the devotion of body and mind and soul to the service of God and our fellow man. At this service, while making us a blessing to others, and this service, while making us a blessing to others, brings the greatest blessing to ourselves. Unselfishness underlies all true development. Through unselfishness service, we receive the highest culture of every faculty. I mean, every one of these senses are dripping with the development of person potential. This unselfish service brings the highest culture of every faculty. Can you imagine how robust the growth of mind could be if it was bent on the concept of service, of work? How many people, you know, it's a... Uh, it, it, it's a strange thing that we have all these unfulfilled geniuses out there, and yet some of these people, like Ford and Bell and Edison, it was nothing but true grit that kept them going, and they become transformers of life and society, this element of unselfish service. More and more fully do we become partakers of the divine nature through this unselfish service. We are fitted for heaven, and we receive heaven into our hearts. Now, let's get down to the quote of the chapter, the quote that is absolutely the most imperative of the first chapter, and I'm just going to turn it in my book for it. It's on page 17. Every human being is created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the Creator, individuality, power to think and do. The men in whom this power or women is developed are the people who bear responsibilities, who are leaders in enterprise and who influence character. Do you want your children to be in that rank? Do you want to be in that rank? People who develop power, people who bear responsibilities and shape enterprises and influence character. That's who we're be. It is the work of true education to develop this power. 
and to train our youth to be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thought. Now, you've heard that one before. It's been popular to reference to that one. Instead of confining their study to that which men have said or written, let students be directed to the sources of truth. You could say inspiration. To the vast fields opened for research in nature and revelation. And here comes the sentence. This is it. If there's one sentence out of this first chapter that even builds above the sentence of service, loving service, it's this one. Let them contemplate the facts of duty and destiny, and the mind will expand and strengthen. Let them contemplate the great facts of duty and destiny, and the mind will expand and be strengthened. So how about if we start by contemplating the great facts of duty and destiny for a minute? Could we do that? Oh, I know. In this society, nobody should guilt you with any kind of duty to anything. As a matter of fact, the very way I said that was uh, somewhat indicative of how this society works. That if you do feel guilty, it's somebody else's problem. It's like I could take guilt and like a wizard of old, maybe like the wicked witch of the east, I could throw a little guilt at you and it could stick. He made me guilty. Is that how it works? Or do we truly, as the paragraph says, stand as individuals free to think? And is there right and wrong? And is there truth? And if there is, should anybody be the one who's a friend that's closer than a brother, but also delivers the wounds that set one's feet on the path of healing and hope? Yes, you see, friends, as foolish as Paul was in 2 Corinthians, I'll be that foolish here this morning and suggest to you today that the great missing ingredients from Adventist education in the 21st century are missing also in the homes, and they're missing in lots of churches. And that's why God's work is weak when it should be strong, because God calls us to a divinely pre-birth appointed de destiny and a duty to fulfill that destiny. And when we don't do it, not only do we suffer, but the world suffers for lack of a witness. God forbid. You were brought into this world with a destiny. It doesn't matter if you're taking out the trash or picking it up on the roadside or if you're leading an institution at the highest order of finance or learning. There is a role for you to play that shapes this world with heavenly hope and somebody else's hope of a divine destiny if you serve for God and a love for your fellow men. There is a destiny in every one of your lives, and it's not sitting around learning how to addict yourself to electronic devices. And no, it's not learning how to please yourself and make yourself better and easy while the rest of the world is in deep trouble. There is a duty and a destiny. One inspires to the highest level of disbelief that God would actually use me, and the other reminds you when you don't feel so inspired that, yeah, that's your job. You need to do it. It's a terrible thing when you lean on a broken reed. But when you've got a staff in your hands and you're toiling up the mountain of life and you can lean on something like a development in character of duty with a sense of the top of the mountain destiny, there's something in the end, even though in the immediacy it's it's hard, it's heavy, it's dark, it's long. I am so thankful to a mother who would not let me quit 
to a mother who made me do the unpleasant and difficult things, to somebody who took me through that phase of life, and woe be unto a generation who's taught they can sit around and have a maid and a butler. And woe be unto the generation who thinks a big paycheck and a nice house with lots of vacation opportunities is the goal. None of that. We have wandered so far in the Adventist church and then consequently into the schools that we are now looking like the tail and feeling like a, a Rottweiler puppy which is about to get that part of the body excised. Now I want to talk about church school boards and boards of education and church boards. You know, in some places you can't get anything done because nobody agrees. In some places you can't get anything done because there's not a sweet spirit. In some places you can't get anything done because there is no unity. In some places you can't get anything done because people are too insecure. And they're afraid to speak up with an idea that might be really good. And some are too insecure to recognize that they've got to criticize everything. But the, one of the main things I want to mention here is that when we're not close as a people it's awfully hard to recalibrate. It's pretty hard. I'm reading a book. And in that book, which is written by a Navy SEAL, he talks about a blue-on-blue blue event. You know, that's when you're shooting your own people. It's pretty hard for it not to happen sometimes. The name of the book is Extreme Ownership. I think I might be satisfied with ownership from a lot of people. <laughs> extreme ownership would have extreme results. But I'm afraid the devil's done a really good job at making sure the only thing we're extremely committed to are the things that pay off for us. Now, I want to affirm this church, this local church, immensely. Some of the members of this church were here till 3 o'clock in the morning on Thursday night trying to get something done that needs done for one of the ministries that's going on here. They got up the next morning quite early still and went about everything else they needed to do. That's just one little window on the kind of spirit that is working its way through this church, which I want to affirm and while you may not be in the position or needed to do that kind of thing, where do the lines of duty relative to the church, where are they drawn in your life? And I'll guarantee you parents, if they're drawn very casually, then the last paragraph, which is the one in your bulletin, pick it up, is the one that you might want to post on your refrigerator. Same book, page 264. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. In view of this command, can we educate our sons and daughters for a life of respectable conventionality? A life professedly Christian but lacking his self-sacrifice? A life on which the verdict of him who is truth must be, I know you not. Now, I don't want you to have missed the word sacrifice in that first paragraph. It was in the first paragraph of the book. It's going to be all throughout the book. Second paragraph. Thousands are doing this. They think to secure for their children the benefits of the gospel while they deny its spirit. What does that mean? But this cannot be. She's going to explain it. 
Those who reject the privilege of fellowship with Christ in service, there's the word again. They reject the only training that imparts for a fitness for participation with him in glory. Now you know why the good Samaritan was reckoned as good. And now you know why Matthew 25 is in the Bible. You know, prison, food. Many a father and mother, here we go. This must be one of the most painful paragraphs in the book. Many of father and mother denying their children to the cross of Christ have learned too late that they were thus giving them over to the enemy of God and man. They sealed their ruin not alone for the future, but for the present life. I think of that young woman who met me in the foyer seven years ago could not have been out of her 20s, was recently married, and her marriage was falling to absolute pieces through a philandering husband. He had not learned the character elements that would make for a rewarding and beautiful partnership for this young woman. She barely knew me from Adam, but she opened up her heart and told me the story standing in that very lobby where there's a podium with bulletins on it. And when I read, their lives are sealed with ruin, not alone for the future, but for this present life. How do you keep your children from the cross? How do you deny them from the cross? You're too busy, so you do the work at home yourself. And they never learn what it means to serve. You pay them for everything they do, so they never learn what it means to serve for free, for love, like Jesus. It means you never upset the family schedule, so you're never at the auxiliary meetings of the church, and you don't take on too many responsibilities at church because you want a good little family. I want to tell you, you can make an idol of your good little family. And we've gone a long ways past the days where people are just leaving their families behind on the road to Calvary, but I want to tell you, in this very book, or in books like it, she suggests there will be people who still sacrifice in the name of Jesus some of those filial affections and those privileges of being together. You see, friends, respectable and conventional is not bad. But if it's supposed to be more by the directives of inspiration, and if we're supposed to say, you know what? Reading, writing, and arithmetic matter. you got to know them in this technical age. Of course you do. But maybe it's time for everybody to step back and say, maybe mission drift didn't hurt us in the 70s when most of the culture was running quite parallel to the issues of general Christianity. But I wonder, since most of the culture has peeled off to the radical hedonistic pagan left... I wonder, oh, and by the way, let me not, today's not a day to talk about the hypocritical right. We're not in either group. But if it comes down to recognizing that you were born a boy or a girl, most of you, 99.9% .9 of people were born a boy or a girl. And when it comes down to recognizing that marriage is between a man and a woman, and when it comes down to protection for little bitty babies who have nobody to protect themselves, God's word speaks to all of this. And when I was a kid, there wasn't a lot of dissension on it. But I want to tell you, society has peeled off radically to a hedonistic, sight-oriented, 
empirical science data-driven, if you can't see it, you don't believe it, direction, and maybe it's time to reinvigorate Adventist education with a inspired basis and a faith-built administrative motive that will allow us to become the head again, not the tail, and to prosper in what we're doing, and to prepare our young people for an army that is going to stand up against the, the allegiance of various people who are serving hell in the name of heaven. And they're going to have to stand. And if they haven't learned the spirit of service, loving service, and if they don't understand duty and destiny, they have no future. I always sort of knew what Paul meant when he was writing, and he said, having a form of godliness but denying the spirit thereof. The first chapter of the book of education made it inexplicably clear. The only problem was, when I read it the other day, it confirmed something in my own heart. Sometimes parents will ask me about child rearing. I'm no expert on parenting. I'm hardly an expert on my own life, and I'm maybe barely one of the few that might sort of exist on my four children. But one thing I do tell parents when they care to ask me about parenting, I'd say if I had to do it over again, and I taught my kids to work, by the way. I tried to teach them how to serve for love, and you've heard me talk about it before. But I said if I had to do it over again, I'd take them to a lot more soup kitchens. I'd put them in a lot more places where the natural impulses of heaven could motivate them. And of course, most of it has to happen at home. And we tried there too. But I'd put them in a lot more places where they would be face to face with the spirit of the cross. Because unless that happens, they can be theological professors or preeminent preachers. And they can be as lost and as dry as the hills of Gaboa. Folks, there may be a little bit less time for some of the things that you think are important when you make time for the things that inspiration says are the transformational, character-shaping cornerstones of character. And I'm here this morning to challenge every single person here. How many of you are teachers? I don't know, but I'm here this morning to challenge every single person here to get the book Education and start reading it. Start reading it. Our public school education in most of this country is in a colossal crisis. We don't want to be very far behind them. We'd like to be going the exact opposite direction. And this morning, as I have spoken foolishly in the beginning, I'm here to say that I will do all I can with you to make sure that our local educational initiatives have the prayerful, meaningful, monetary time support that they need to raise children up who understand duty and destiny and love to serve for the sake of serving in love. 
This is the call of Christ. This is why our institutions exist. They are not simply a place to save little Johnny or Mary where they don't cuss and they don't swear and they can read the Bible and they're not taught they're an accident. While all of those things matter, they are not enough. And God is calling us back to inspiration, walking by faith, not by sight. And if the world mocks us because they don't accept our sources, let them mock If the world derides us, how many years did the world think that we were kooks dietarily because many of us were vegetarians? And now they, the, 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 the roads that have been beaten down going to the blue zones of Southern California, it's hip to be a vegan now, whereas it was wacko to be a vegetarian unless you lived in California 40 years ago. Let them mock Let them wonder, but may there be a beauty about who we are that emulates Christ. Jesus went from the cradle to the grave, and as a little boy, he started suffering the, the, the aura of the cross. He was unique. He was different, and it hurt him. And I want to tell you, when he became public figure, it hurt even more. His own 12 didn't understand him, and on that day, they all ran away. Jesus understood duty and destiny, not just his, but ours. If he didn't walk up Mount Calvary, our destiny was gone. It was over. Jesus pressed on for you and me. We should stop and think about it more. We shouldn't be so full and constantly distracted, infinite distractions. We must stop and remember that the goal of Christian education is higher ground as we follow the master to the high places. Friends, you'd be proud. Between the services, I got a text from Stacy Gusky. Maybe next week when they're back, I'll show it. That little Key Largo church in Florida, four people coming to it. But this morning, because our young people made a decision, or our, the leaders made the decision, actually. And by the way, without good leadership, nothing's going anywhere. But the leaders made a decision, we're going to church on Sabbath. It will encourage the people of this little church, and it will encourage our kids. On this phone, I have a video clip with more of our young people standing on the platform leading out than usually attend. And I just type back a one-word response, wonderful exclamation point. I was told by our principal that when it came time for our kids to figure out who was doing what in the church service, they were basically fighting over a chance to be involved in the church service. Wonderful exclamation point. Parents, keep your courage. Don't give up. Grandmas and grandpas encourage, sometimes challenge. Young people, unmarried, build on the rock. Let the cornerstone be Christ. Understand what you're doing. You don't want to lose your kids to the world, and the devil's going about prowling to get them. By God's grace, friends, our educational system will recapture its role on the front side of the body, not the back. It will be the head and not the tail. And at great expense and much challenge and much prayer and much difficulty, an army of youth will be raised up who loves to serve and serves to love and understand their duty and their destiny. Even so, Adventist education must go beyond respectable and conventional. And by God's grace, it is and it will. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing our closing hymn.
Father, forgive us when we allowed the spirit of the world with its data and its science to preempt the science of inspiration. Forgive us when in our own homes and our own churches the spirit of service for love and loving service has been traded in on life of convenience and ease. And then we casually look to scapegoat failures through the schools. I'm praying, Lord, for every parent listening today, whether they're present or far away through technology. If they're not practicing the law of loving service to their spouse or to the others of their household or circle of relationships, forgive them, and may they be preeminent as the most loving and service-oriented people anyone could know. Certainly, corporations have built on this principle when its first origins are from you. I pray forgive us as a church, Lord, when we've offered stinted service or blemished service, when it should have been our best and it was our leftovers. I'm praying, Lord, forgive us when we've not really stopped to evaluate often enough what our purpose is, what our duty and destiny is, and to make sure it's formalized in our educational system and structured in the schedules of our home and held aloft as a light to guide the way in our churches. Forgive us, Lord. And I'm praying now, may we take the first principles of heaven and incorporate them into the school, no matter whether or not they can be accredited by man or not. And I'm asking, Lord, that you'd give us the nobility and the dignity, the influence, the power to lead and change, and the patience, and the wisdom. So now, Lord, I thank you for this village congregation which has shown an ever-growing commitment to your mission, to, its, to your school, to its own brothers and sisters. And now I'm praying, Lord, give them courage. If they're feeling low, give them strength. Come alongside them. Give them a window from heaven. Let a divine ray shine through. But, oh, Lord, Help us to be like Jesus, who serves for love, understands destiny, and lets duty take over when feelings go the other way. Oh, Lord, thank you for what you've done and you'll do. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. You know, I do want to affirm this church. And what an encouragement you've been to me and so many. Keep on, brothers, sisters, keep on. Now, it's time to go, and it's the coldest day of the year. We could hope it is the coldest day of the year, but next Sabbath may be the coldest day yet. I know you love the fellowship, and I know God has protected us from COVID. Can you say amen? amen. You've cooperated, and we've met for about seven months, and there's no outbreak traceable to this church, praise the Lord. Having said that, if you could continue making a good effort with people that aren't inside your little bubble to practice good health. And someday, believe it or not, whether COVID's behind us or not, our confidence will have grown and we will be ready for the next thing. In the meantime, let's be cooperative inside the principles that we've been operating under. I encourage you not to linger in the church and bunch up in the narthex. If you want to visit, visit outside. 
Sabbath lunch won't get as cold that way because you'll get cold first. And uh, let's have a good rest of the day. God be with you. And uh, we'll sing a song while you're ushered out from the back. As you're waiting, as you're waiting to be dismissed, please join us in singing hymn number 469, leaning on that everlasting arms.